exciting like announcements. Uh, the first one, first one's a save the date kind of announcement. Um, talking to you about the Berean Fellowship connection for 2018. So the dates for that Berean Fellowship convention uh, are July 22nd, 23rd, 24th, and 25th. And this is important because we're hosting it. And so we probably ought to be involved in it. So July 22nd through 25th. It's good. I also want to remind you that next week are the beginning of the adult enrichment classes for the winter quarter 2018. Uh, one of them's a men's only class, and that's going to be Seth Freet leading that um, and connecting with men for Christ's glory and for the good of his church. And then um, Carrie Brand sitting five or six, oh, here, hand it up, uh, sitting six feet to my right, is going to be leading a study on the hiding place. This is a women's only study where they will pull the spiritual truths from the different chapters in the hiding place, and they'll connect them with women's experiences in the scriptures. So you're going to want to be a part of that. And if neither of those appeal to you, you can study with me. I'm going to be leading a group on basic Christology, and we're going to look at Jesus in the Old Testament, Jesus in the Gospels, Jesus in the Epistles, and Jesus in the history of the early church, and I'm looking forward to doing that with you. So that all starts next Sunday, and hopefully the weather will be just a little bit warmer. All right. Um, I want to disclaim a little bit at the beginning of this message that I don't know exactly what I'm delivering to you this morning. It's not exactly a sermon. It's not exactly a lecture. Um, It's not exactly a class period, but it's kind of some combination maybe of all three of those things. And I got to dismiss people for children's church too. All right, so if you are four years old through first grade, uh, you should head towards the north door. I don't know who you're going to follow over there because they're in the shade you're going to follow Katie Stafford. There we go. So young people, go enjoy Children's Church. Or you could stay for a nice, exciting lecture on the Reformation. All right. So, um, It's funny, I had it in mind, too. Like, dismiss children, dismiss children. Um, so it's a different sort of message than usual. And the other disclaimer I will make is you're going to hear the name Martin Luther a lot. And that's not because I'm proposing that we become a Lutheran church or anything like that. It's because out of all the study I've done of the Protestant Reformation, I've spent the most time on Luther, and so I'm the most able to speak about what he said and or did. Um, so this is church history, which we gloss over an awful lot. And my first brush that I can remember with church history happened when I was about 12 or 13 years old, and I found out that my dad's college classmate, Bob Wilhite, was going to come over to our house for Sunday dinner. And this was very, very unusual because my parents were shy people who never had anybody in the house except for close relatives who happened to be in town. But Bob Wilhite came for Sunday dinner, and so there we are. We're sitting at the mahogany dining room table, which we never use, right? And it's my two parents and me and Bob. And I find out that Bob was a teacher earlier in his life, and so a natural question would be, what did you teach? And he said, church history. I thought, okay. 
Um, and, but he wasn't teaching anymore. And I said, why did you quit? And he said, he looked straight at me with this look of disgust on his face. And he said, church history is a social disease. And I had no idea what he meant at that time. Now, with 30 more years behind me, I have a little more perspective on that. And basically, what he meant is that the fallenness of mankind shows up real strongly in the history of the church. But I would like to argue for you this morning that the grace of God also shows up in the history of the church. And one of those eras where that grace is very evident is in the time of the Protestant Reformation. And so um, we're going to dig into this this morning, talking about the Protestant Reformation. And the reason that this has been a big deal lately, I don't know if you've noticed that extra books are being published about the Reformation and people are having events about the Reformation and books like this one, Rescuing the Gospel by Erwin W. Lutzer. The reason that's happening is we're right around the 500th anniversary of a really big event in the time of the Reformation, which I will, of course, touch on a little later in the message. So, I wanted to set the background for you by talking about the condition of the church in medieval Europe. Um, It's very, very different than what you would experience or consider church to be like today. For starters, the Roman Catholic Church is the only church. It's the only one you have a possibility of being a part of. The Roman Catholic Church answers to the Pope and the Curia, which is a little group of advisors that he had around him. And this late 1400s, early 1500s version of the church had all but lost the gospel. So um, the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ that men and women have a need, and that our need is spiritual, that we're in trouble before a holy God, and that Jesus is the answer to that spiritual need that we have, had almost been lost, had been quite obscured, because senior church officials had pet projects that they were interested in. Um, It was all about bringing in the funding, and it was all about increasing their power. And so the, the central message got lost, even to the point that wealthy people would have priests say masses for them. Like some priests were so good at this that they could crank out seven masses in one hour and be paid for all seven of them. The idea being that somehow the wealthy person was getting a spiritual benefit if, in fact, these masses were said for them. Also, sexual immorality among the clergy was out of control. And Uh, You remember that clergy at this time are supposed to be celibate, but that simply wasn't the case in many, many of their lives. And then you have the church members themselves. They are terrified. They are terrified that they are, if, if they offend a priest or, heaven forbid, if they offend a bishop, they'd be in awful trouble and excommunicated, kicked out of the one and only church. And so the people believe that they have to work their way into God's favor and know, in a sense, that they have to stay in the favor of the church officials. And there's a drawing, there's a drawing I saw in studying for all of this, um, of a man lying on his deathbed. It's probably from the late 1400s. 
Um, the guy's lying on his deathbed. He's clearly close to gone. And all around the bed, there are demons below the bed and kind of peeking up over the side of the bed. Seven, eight, nine demons. And the implication is that they're all waiting to take this guy, grab his soul, and send him straight to hell. Unless the priest gets there at exactly the right time and administers God's grace to this guy, he is a goner. Right? And um, that's trouble because true doctrine and superstition are so tangled up with each other that the people have no idea which one is which and they have no basis on which to evaluate. So, some factors that split open this festering wound called the church um, around the year 1500. Well, they've got a lot of corruption to start And corruption leads to infighting, and corruption leads to a lack of spiritual authority. And so at one point during the 1400s, there were actually three different men claiming to be pope in three different cities all at the same time. Now, if that isn't going to weaken your organization, I don't know what will. But they eventually, what is called the papal schism, uh, got pulled back together during the 1400s, but it weakened the structure. And then, 1450s, you get the development of the printing press, Johann Gutenberg, uh, and it really speeds how quickly you can disseminate information. It's kind of like the internet of their time. And so uh, there was much printing that began to go on the second half of the 1400s. There's widespread political instability across Europe. And the Ottoman Turks are pressing on the eastern border of Christian lands, and that is stressing out the church officials and the emperor all together as one. They're, they're very troubled by the Turks coming forth. Uh, and so Europe in the year 1500 is ripe for change. They know something's going to happen. They just don't know what. I took a moment to talk about why we're celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation now, and that's because it's easy to point to a 1517 event that sort of broke it all open. And this event centered on an unimportant German monk named Martin Luther. Luther had the background, the upbringing, and the temperament to be a very spiritually anxious person. And so he spent his early years wondering how he was going to be right with God and then had kind of a powerful formative event at which he declared afterwards that he was going to become a monk. And so he went into the monastery. He became a monk. And he did monk things with incredible fervor, incredible zeal, incredible faithfulness. And he felt no better about his relationship with God. And in fact, the guy would go and confess six or seven hours a day to whoever was hearing confession, and the people hearing confession wished that he would say something interesting ever when he confessed. But that was the sort of fellow that Luther was. And his mentor, Johann von Staupitz, said to him, I want you to become a professor of biblical studies. And Luther thought this was a crazy idea, but he did it anyway. And so he began professoring. He was teaching through the book of Romans in 1515. And he came across Romans 1, 16 and 17, where Paul writes, 
I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Luther began to think about that. The righteous will live by faith. The righteousness from God is revealed. And he realized this is not the righteousness that God demands from us. This is the righteousness that God gives to us in Christ. And that changed everything. (coughs) That changed everything for Martin Luther. And he said, at that moment, it was like the gates of heaven had been opened to him and he had been reborn and all was going to be different from that point forward. See, what had happened is Luther discovered the gospel, the gospel that we preach today, that God made Jesus who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Well, at the same time that Luther was awakening spiritually, the medieval church was doing its best to raise money. See, because they had this big building project going on back in Rome that they needed money for. And I'm skipping a whole bunch of detail here. But basically, they sent out a guy named John Tetzel to raise money. And the way that they were going to accomplish the raising of the money is Tetzel was going to go around selling these things called indulgences. And indulgences are basically like a get-out-of-jail-free card, except for purgatory. So the medieval Catholic Church had this idea called purgatory, which is a place you go if you were not righteous enough during your earthly life. You go to purgatory, and you work off your sins. So it doesn't sound like a very enjoyable place to be. So when John Tetzel came to the area around Wittenberg, He opposed, or Martin Luther opposed him. He was opposed by Luther um, because, you know, the Bible doesn't say anything about buying your way out of punishment for sins. Um, And the reason that 1517 is such an important year is that was the year that Luther drew up 95 debate propositions, 95 statements that he was putting out there for people and especially other scholars and other universities to debate. And those became the 95 theses that everybody's heard about around the castle church door at Wittenberg. And so the results of this were a bunch of debates. Debates with Catholic officials, debates with the emperor, debates with councils, until finally the Catholic church said, we're done with you. And they kicked Luther out, um, and the empire declared him an outlaw. And so um, things changed quite a bit in his life at that moment. And the point of all this is that Luther and many others like him, John Calvin, Ulrich Zwingli, reformers of that time, when the church came down on them and said, you can't preach this gospel... They refused to shut up. They kept going because of their passion for Christ, their compassion for the people around them, and their desire for the truth to be known. And 
their heroic actions have shaped most of the church that you have experience with today, even right here at Berean Community Church. We are downstream of the Protestant Reformation, and we're living in the blessings that people 500 years ago won for us. And if you don't get anything else this morning, that's what I want you to get. So the rest of this message is going to focus on what are five of those blessings— five things that came out of the Protestant Reformation that you and I live with to our benefit today. And there might also be a little bit of critiquing of the Protestant Reformation um, in this part of the message as well. So you can see, if you got the white handout that went along with your bulletin, it's got five points of five things that came out of the Reformation. There certainly were others. It's just five was as much as I dared for a message on a Sunday morning, right? So, point number one, the rediscovery of the gospel. You know, the point of Jesus' life and death and resurrection from the dead is that God takes the initiative in saving sinners. That God comes to you and says, you are lost. You are condemned. And unless you come to faith in my son, you will need to be punished for the sins that you have committed in the sinful nature that you have. And God takes the initiative to bring people to him. Therefore, he gets the glory. And therefore, the sinner who is in Christ doesn't need to fear for their salvation because it's Jesus who's accomplished the salvation. Jesus is the author and perfecter of your faith. And so it's not dependent on how awesome you are at keeping the rules. But instead, the church bit by bit added so many extra biblical teachings that the average church member in the year 1500 thought that he had to pray this prayer or sing this song or do this good deed, or go on this pilgrimage, or venerate this relic, or whatever it was that the church officials were telling him to do so that he could appease God's wrath. And the reformers were reformers precisely because God had revealed to them that this is not how it was. For example, you could turn to Ephesians chapter 2. I think we should do this. If you have your Bible turn to Ephesians 2, and we'll look at the contrast. How is this different than doing religious acts? Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. 
and this not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. See, the Reformers discovered that they were dead in their transgressions, with no hope of pulling out of it on their own authority, and their own efforts. Verse 3 says they were objects of wrath. That was their condition. And they discovered that God saves us because he loves us and wants us to be rescued, wants us to experience his divine goodness and his divine presence in our lives. And they discovered that God saves us by grace, his undeserved love alone, and that the life of good works follows the experience of salvation, not precedes it. And they summarized these points about the Bible's teaching on salvation. They were nice and concisely rendered in Latin, the language of the scholars of that day. And so, um, sola gratia, by grace alone, sola fide, through faith alone, and solus Christus, the idea that Christ alone is our only hope of salvation. Those are three of the five solas. And what I've just talked about is called the doctrine of justification by faith. And it is the most precious gift that's come out of us, that's come out of the Protestant Reformation and come down to us. All right, so rediscovery of the gospel. Number two, the emphasis placed on teaching of the Bible. So we've got to go back to the late medieval church again. The late medieval church had two streams of authority. The one stream was all about church tradition, and it included things like the creeds, the councils of the church, what the pope said, canon law, and that was one stream of authoritative speech. The other stream was the Bible, the scriptures themselves. And they were both held up pretty much in equality in the years of the late Middle Ages, 1400s and 1500s. As the Reformers begin to lose faith in the leaders of the Roman Catholic Church, they pretty much dumped church tradition and elevated Scripture as the only rule of faith and practice. And I want to say that that was generally a good decision. Is like Matthew twenty four thirty five says, heaven and earth will pass away. This is Jesus talking. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And so we have Jesus affirming his word as eternal and authoritative. And we have statements in the scripture like Second Peter 1, 20 and 21, where Peter writes, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so the effect of this, of elevating the Scripture and acknowledging that the Scripture is God's Word to us, is that the Mass, the central feature of the church service at that time, was replaced with exposition from God's Word. In other words, what Nathan does every week when he comes up, opens the Word of God to you, reads a passage, and then explains what it means, right? That's expositional preaching, and that is another gift 
that the Reformers gave us. Now, I said a little bit earlier that it was generally a good decision. And some of you might have thought, generally a good decision? What do you mean by that? Isn't it all the way a good decision? Well, they've sort of got an unintentional loss. See, just because church tradition isn't on a par with the Word of God doesn't mean that it's completely valueless. See, and that's kind of what's happened to us as Protestants, is we are awfully ignorant about anything that happened between the end of the Scripture and maybe about the middle of the 20th century. And that is to our detriment. The fact that we do not know clearly the things that happened in between there means that when we face an issue or when we face an interpretation of a passage, we don't have a good group of advisors, if you will, to go to because we simply don't know who they are, what they said, or what they thought about those issues. And so it's as though we're facing the same problem and reinventing the wheel when we didn't realize there were actually folks who'd already done a lot of work on the wheel, right? So, um, not to mention that the Bible is pro-tradition, Here's a verse, um, godly tradition, that is. Uh, Paul wrote in 2 Thessalonians 2.15, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the teachings, which honestly would be better translated traditions there, we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. So tradition, godly tradition, is not at all in conflict with the Scripture. Point number three, the Word of God and the service in the language of the people. So we go back to the late Middle Ages again. 1400, 1500, the Bible and the worship service are both in Latin, the language of the medieval scholar. And people attend the services and they have no idea what's going on in the service because the priest speaks in Latin and there's no explanation. It's just the service is given as it's given. Until Johann Gutenberg came around, the Bible was a pretty rare book because they were hand-copied, and they were huge, and they were beautiful, and they were chained up in libraries where only scholars could get to them, and honestly, nobody else could read Latin, so why would they want to, Right? And so the effect of this is that no ordinary person has access to the Bible. No ordinary person knows what's going on in the worship service. And in fact, I was thinking about this, it must have felt a little bit like magic to them because the priest goes up there, says some stuff in a language that they don't understand, and supposedly the bread and the wine become the body and blood of Christ. Well, the first guy to bust open the cartel, so to speak, was uh, John Wycliffe. And this guy lived in England in the 1300s, and he made a translation of the Bible from the Vulgate, which is a Latin Bible that Jerome finished in the 300s AD. He translated from the Vulgate to Middle English. And suddenly, people in England had the Bible in their own language, and they were able to grow and benefit from that. 150 years later, Luther comes along and essentially does the same thing, only better. His Bible came from the Greek um, 
manuscripts isn't quite the right word, but his, his Bible came from the original Greek uh, and then was translated into German. And Luther had a great ear for the German of the people at that day. And so um, his translation, besides bringing the necessary and wonderful spiritual benefits that having the Bible in your own language brings, his Bible also unified the language of Germany and was the Bible that the German church used for the next 400 years. So it was quite an accomplishment. Um, he got the entire New Testament finished in a period of 11 weeks. Think about that. So, um, and so the Bible and the worship service being in the language of the people were a huge benefit um, to the church in Reformation Europe. I should make a quick comment on that. It, having the Bible in the language of the people minimizes the power of the clergy. Until that point, the people were captive to whatever the priest told them was in the Bible. As soon as they can read it for themselves, now they do exactly what I hope you did with me this morning when I said, let's turn to Ephesians 2. You kept a check on me. And you, you looked at the passage that was in front of you, read the words, in, took in the words, and then listened to what I had to say about them, hopefully in at least a somewhat evaluative manner. Like, is he teaching us what is true based on what I know from the rest of Scripture? And that's important. Oh. And it gave a transformative power to the worship service that it never had before. Okay. Point number four. The Reformation gave us greater participation in worship by the laity. <clears throat> laity being people who are not pastors, uh, not, not clergy. Some churches don't even like to make the distinction between clergy and laity anymore, lay people anymore, but I kind of have to for this point so that you understand it. For example, here we are back to our medieval church, right? 1400s, 1500s. The medieval church in the Lord's Supper, they only allowed the people to have the bread. So the priest distributes the bread and then the wine is drunk by the priests themselves in the communion. Right after the Roman Catholic Church says to Luther, you're out, that's one of the first changes they make in uh, 1520s Germany. They go home and they say, no, the Lord's Supper is for the bread and the wine is for all of the worshipers, not just the priest. And so that's a change that uh, we've been recipients of and has stuck with us for the 500 years here. Um, another place and probably very near and dear to our hearts, is in the area of music. If you go to their time, you've got uh, maybe a group of monks singing together, chanting a chorus or something like that. The lay people did not sing in a worship service. Remember, everything's in Latin. They don't know Latin. And so the congregational singing was not a big deal. Um, before the time of the Reformation. And Luther and others look at this situation and say, this would be a great opportunity for discipleship 
And so Luther himself writes over 40 different hymns, and then he and others who write hymns put them together in hymnals, and they begin to sing them in the worship service. So now, not only are you participating in the worship, but even the most needy peasant who's in that service, he can leave singing the songs that he's learned to sing in the worship service. And whether he's at his plow or his forge or in his bakery, he can sing those songs all week. And not only will he be worshiping God, but he'll be taking in one more time the messages that those hymns contained. And so Luther used hymns extensively in discipleship, and so did John Calvin. Calvin wrote hymns as well and came up, his is actually the Genevan Psalter, is the book that resulted from that. And it was the very same thing, that Calvin had people singing in their own language. And so uh, that, that was a great outcome of the Reformation. And you can see it real actively here today. When the worship team takes the stage at the end of the service, you are living downstream of a blessing that the Reformers won for you. And when Paul comes up here and gives a little teaching as one of our elders and prays for us in the service, he's living downstream of blessings that the Reformers won for us. And the irony of this was not lost on me either. Last summer, Berean Fellowship Convention Um, I was lecturing on the Protestant Reformation. 80% of the attendees of my lecture were vocational pastors. Speaking of vocational pastors, last point. The doctrine of vocation. So another thing, another fault, another flaw that had grown up in the time of the medieval church was there had become this two-tiered system. So the clergy were up here, and Jesus' commands to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me, those applied to the clergy, but they didn't apply to the ordinary people. Sort of the message that the ordinary people got was, if you can just stay out of trouble, that would be good enough. And so there is this deep divide between the pastor and the people. And the reformers began to blow that up also. They exploded this myth using scripture. Scriptures like 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31, that says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And this verse encapsulates the idea of vocation, the doctrine of vocation, that every kind of legitimate work is God's call for the person who's doing that work. And it results in a bunch of different things, like the dignity of labor. So if you're at home folding clothes for your family, that's part of God's vocation for you. Or if you're out selling houses because you're a realtor, that's God's vocation for you. Or if you're driving city bus, that's vocation for you. God's called you to whatever work that he's given you to do. And it's not less valuable just because you don't have a specifically religious occupation. And as Luther wrote at least once, God has no need of your good works, but your neighbor sure does. So 
It brings value. It brings dignity to all areas of life. So, what do you do with a message like this? This may be more of a lecture than a sermon. Well, I have three thoughts. Maybe a message like this has sparked in you a desire to learn more about church history or to learn more about the Protestant Reformation specifically. And if so, I think that's good. And I have resources I could point you to or even loan to you. Or maybe knowing something about the history of the church and the Reformation, maybe that would inspire you to read the Bible more for yourself. When you realize that men and women suffered and were punished and were cast out of society because they specifically wanted people to be able to read the Bible in their own language, that is a pretty big privilege. And we don't take advantage of it nearly as often as we should. Or finally, maybe a message like this will inspire you to ask the question, what kind of reforms do we need today? Because it would be silly to think that all the reforming is done and that, well, we fixed it all 500 years ago and so it's all good now. What kind of reforms does the church need today? What kind of reforms are you, are you needing to make in your own life and your own family? And how will the Holy Spirit lead you to do those during calendar year 2018? So those are the questions that I'd like to bring up to you in closing this morning. I'm going to ask you to pray with me, and then I'm sure the worship team will rejoin us. Let's pray. Father, I've delivered 